be in Nehemiah chapter 6. If you have a Bible and would like to turn there, the text will be up on the screen. Let me ask you a question. I know you've heard the phrase, one step forward, two steps back. Uh, can I ask you, have you ever experienced that? Has that ever been kind of a reality in your life? I mean, just when you think things are starting to come together, you're making some progress, you're moving ahead, and something happens and you find yourself two, three, four steps behind. You get a tax refund and then the fridge goes out and the car breaks down. Just when you thought you were getting ahead, you thought your marriage was doing quite well and then a nasty conflict comes up and you feel a little discouraged about how that's going. You're doing great with controlling your temper until that child sets you off with interrupting your quiet time, your peaceful me time that you were trying so hard to have. We're just getting our rhythm down with a church, as a church, in our meeting, and they tell us we can't meet here anymore, and we have to change locations and times. When it comes to church building, which is the title of our series, church building, not a noun, a verb, what we're doing, church building, God's project for the future. We have to come to terms with the present reality that the work is not yet finished, nor is the opposition to it letting up. The lesson this afternoon is about how to keep going in the midst of opposition and setbacks. Nehemiah chapter 6 is a reminder that in the Christian life, opposition and struggle is ongoing. It's not over yet, but it's a reminder with also helpful instruction, how to stay sharp and discerning and to persevere. It also comes with a reminder of hope that God does act and move and enable real progress in the work that he's called us to. In the chapter, we're given three vignettes of opposition specifically towards the man Nehemiah. They also include three wise responses that Nehemiah gives to this opposition. So in a statement, what we're talking about this afternoon is that the best strategy and antidote to opposition is to know God well and to know what he's called us to build. In other words, knowing God and knowing God's plan will give us discernment and courage against opposition. Okay? Knowing God, knowing God well, knowing what he's called us to do, knowing the task that he's given us, knowing what that means, those are the antidotes. Those are the sources that will supply discernment, courage, and strength as the opposition comes. It's almost a little too simple to put into a sermon. Know who you belong to and know what he wants you to do. That's the key. If you want to stand up strong through opposition, through struggle, through adversity, know who you belong to, know what he's called you to do, and you will have everything you need to make it through opposition and setbacks. Let's read the chapter Actually, we'll just we'll take 16 verses of Nehemiah chapter 6. 
Now when Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left in it, although up to that time I had not set up the doors in the gates, Sanballat and Geshem sent to me saying, come and let us meet together at Hagafirim in the plain of Ono. But they intended to do me harm. And I sent messengers to them saying, I'm doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? And they sent to me four times in this way. And I answered them in the same manner. In the same way, Sanballat for the fifth time sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. In it was written, it is reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel. That is why you are building the wall. And according to these reports, you wish to become their king. And you have also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah. And now the king will hear of these reports. So now come and let us take counsel together. Then I sent to him, saying, No such things as you say have been done, for you are inventing them out of your own mind. For they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done. But now, O oh God, strengthen my hands. Now when I went into the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, son of Mehetabel, who was confined to his home, he said, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. They are coming to kill you by night. But I said, should such a man as I run away? And what man such as I could go into the temple and live? I will not go in. And I understood and saw that God had not sent him, but he had pronounced the prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. For this purpose he was hired that I should be afraid and act in this way and sin, and so they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. Remember Tobiah and Sanballat, oh my God according to these things that they did, and also the prophetess, Noadiah, and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month of Elu in, the fifth, in 52 days, and when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Let's take a look at these three vignettes of opposition that Nehemiah experienced. Let's look at his responses and see what we can learn and how we can grow in dealing with them in our own lives. The strategy at this point of the enemies of the people of God is to focus on the leader. In chapter 4, when we studied that a few weeks back, the enemies jeered at the Jews and mocked their work. Now, in Nehemiah chapter 6, they set their sights on him. Eliminate the leader and you will stop the work. 
Satan's strategy with Jesus, strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. That's the idea here. They're going for Nehemiah. They're going for the leader. The whole thing seems to rest on him, his motivation, his faith, his strength. And if they can take him out, they stop the work. So the first opposition, opposition number one, comes with this face of friendship. Very polite invitation. Come, let's talk. Let's meet and discuss the situation together. Okay, Nehemiah, I understand we got off on the wrong foot together. But apparently you seem determined to complete this project. Apparently you're here to stay. I think it would be good for us to negotiate. Have a little meeting. Come, let's meet, let's talk, let's be friends. Let discuss, let's discuss together how can we be in the same region together and function together. Obviously, you're here to stay. The location was a little suspect. The plain of Ono was about a halfway point between Jerusalem and Samaria. It was supposedly a neutral ter territory, but probably a dangerous place for Jews. And somehow, Nehemiah got wind they meant harm for him. It was, a, it was an assassination plot. That's what was going on here. They were luring him away to a meeting where he would be assassinated. And Nehemiah somehow caught wind of this, knew something was off, and recognized they intend to do me harm. They sent this message four times. Now, if you've battled some kind of temptation in your life, you know the weakness that can come simply with the repetition of it. Have you ever had that? I mean, you got enough strength and resistance the first time around. Okay, you're not going to buy that new pair of shoes. They're $800, and you say no. Then you see them a second time, and then a third time, and then a fourth time. And each time you say no, your no gets a little softer, a little weaker. They are sending this message. Oh, friendly accolades. Nehemiah, come on, let's talk. We're in this together. We're your friends. We're all regional leaders here in the same region. Come meet with us. Let's have dinner together. Come, let's talk. But Nehemiah's response, while he doesn't allude to the danger that he perceives, to their ill intent that he perceives, which would just cause an argument, they would simply deny it. He says, I've got more important things to do with my time. Why should I leave the work? I am doing a great work. What I'm doing is extremely important. I know what God has called me to do. Build this wall. Why should I go away from the work, leave the work, take a day's journey, spend a couple days with you, another day's journey back? Why should I leave the thing that God has called me to do so that I could go and sit and have a conversation with you. I'm doing what God has called me to do. You, my friends, are a distraction to what God has called me to do. And each time he responds, I have important work to do, and I'm not going to leave it to go and meet with you. Knowing what he was called to do enabled him to discern what to say no to. It's a difficult thing to learn. We try to discern things, good or bad, right or wrong, and sometimes we struggle. Sometimes it's not always clear 
whether it is or whether it isn't or which category it is in. Here's the thing that will help you discern. What has God called us to do? What should we be giving ourselves to do? That will give us the discernment of what to say yes to and what to say no to. Jesus was teaching about the cost of discipleship in Luke chapter 9. And he warns against the distractions that come to discipleship. Oh, Jesus, I'll follow you, but I have to go and take care of this business first. Jesus, I'd be glad to follow you, but let me go take care of my parents' situation. I need to bury my dad. I need to take care of this. I need to buy a field. And Jesus wraps up this paragraph with no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. And we're seeing that played out in Nehemiah here in chapter 6. He is proving himself fit for the task. God called him to build this wall, sent him, provided for him miraculously. He's there building the wall. The opposition is trying to distract him from building the wall, but he knows who his God is. He knows what God has called him to do, and he says, no. What are we called to do here as a church? If you pull up our website, you will see a statement that says at Sovereign Grace Church of Pasadena, we're called to love God, love others, and make disciples. That sums it up. That's what we're about. That's what we do as a church. That's what we believe God has called us to do as a church. So when we evaluate as pastors, when we look at various ministries and new ideas, we put that up on the wall and we evaluate, does it fit into those categories? Is what we're doing what we're called to do, or are we getting distracted with other things? Is life filling up? Are our resources getting spent for things other than the things God has called us to do? And friends, you and I need to ask ourselves the same question. As individuals, what are we giving ourselves to? What has God called us to do? Is what I am giving my personal time and energies towards really fit with God's mission for my life? Who I belong to and what he's called me to do. Susanna Wesley, mother of 19, two of the boys were named John and Charles. You'll be familiar with those names. She was asked one time to help understand how to define what is sin. Trying to understand, Mom, how do I know when something is wrong, when something is right? How do I discern? She gave a wonderful answer. Here it is. This is how you decide. Whatever weakens your reason, impairs the tenderness of your conscience, obscures your sense of God, takes off your relish for spiritual things, whatever increases the authority of the body over the mind, that thing is sin to you, however innocent it may seem in itself. Oops, that's a tough standard. That's a hard question to ask ourselves. Am I giving myself to something that is weakening my sense of reason or impairing my tenderness of conscience or obscuring my sense of God or takes my relish away from spiritual things or increases the authority of my body and myself and my flesh over my mind and my heart and my spirit. She understood very well 
the destructive power of distraction. Distraction is often the most subtle form of opposition, which often makes it one of the most dangerous. It comes to us under the guise of friendship, inviting us to a meeting, but it secretly plans to assassinate us. Opposition number two, false accusation. When the friendly, polite invitation didn't take, didn't work, didn't gain any ground with stopping Nehemiah from the work, they upped their game to false accusation. It's time for a straight-up public accusation. It says the fifth time somebody shows up with an open letter, okay? A sealed letter, only the recipient is allowed to open it. We know this. It's against the law to open somebody else's mail. But an open letter means they want everybody to read it. We're familiar with the phrase, an open letter. You've heard that many times. An atheist writes an open letter to Christians. A Christian leader writes an open letter to the church. Somebody has an opinion that they want to communicate to somebody or some organization, but they want everybody to hear their opinion. They write an open letter. It's going to be a very good thing. Book of Revelation, chapters 2 and 3, are a series of open letters that the church continues to learn from to this day. Jesus wrote open letters to the churches so that the church today could read those letters and learn what Jesus was wanting to teach to the church. It also can be used for bad, for harm. Publishing false accusations are just as effective, actually, if not more so. Publishing false accusations happens to work extremely well. There's a unique times that we live in, and uh, a gentleman by the name of Eric Desenhall, he wrote a book called Glass Jaw, writing about how reputations can easily get stained or even ruined. He talked about the conductivity of controversy. In other words, how conductive it is, how easy it spreads. If you get controversy out there, it just shoots and spreads almost with sort of a power and a life of its own. And the point in his book is that everyone, big or small, right or wrong, is vulnerable to reputational attacks from conventionally weaker adversaries. The digital era that we live in has created a heightened appetite and effectiveness for scandal. Now, it's always been the case. Everybody loves a scandal. And we bite, and we pull, and we click, and we follow, and we like to hear it, but now with this extreme conductivity of scandal, it's so easy. He writes in the book, he says, here, unfortunately, I see no evidence that consumers of scandal care if this information they receive is accurate. Isn't that the truth? There's very little outrage or sense of betrayal when information turns out to be wrong, as long as it resonates. Processing negative narratives isn't about enlightenment. It's about stimuli. If you find that to be true, it is a little bit how it works in the days that we live in. Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem, these guys knew what they were doing. They were crafty marketers. An open letter was the way to go. And the threat was real. 
Oh, just so you know, Nehemiah, the king is going to hear about this because they were going to tell him. <laughs> Obviously, they sent off a copy. They, they CC'd the king uh, when they sent this email out, when they posted this blog post against the Jews and against Nehemiah, they made sure it got in front of the king. So now, if that doesn't scare him, what will? Surely this will bring Nehemiah to his knees. Surely this will threaten him. Surely this will cause him to fear the spin. They took some facts, fabricated a narrative around it, Nehemiah wants to establish himself as king, and they plan to rebel against the king of Persia. Let's go tell the king. Let's make sure everybody knows. Here's Nehemiah's response to opposition number two. Three parts. First, a clear denial. It is often a real challenge to know when you feel like your reputation has been stained, you've been falsely accused. I mean, it is, it is honestly... It's one of the things that kind of gets under your skin more than most things. The injustice of it, you feel personally slighted. Somebody says something false about you. I mean, it, if, if anything is going to tempt us to react, that touches some nerves inside our soul. But Nehemiah doesn't bite. A brief, clear, concise denial. No such things as you say have been done. There it is. Now, I'm not trying to use Nehemiah chapter 6 as the form for all responses to false accusations. I understand many situations are unique. might depend on who it is, the context, and all this. I'm not saying that there's one strict biblical strategy, but there's some real wisdom in what Nehemiah is doing here. I know God arranged for me to be here in order to build this wall, those are the facts that I live by. That somebody else would spin a narrative, pull in half-truths, piece them together, fabricate a new narrative, Nehemiah was unmoved by it all. You've made this all up in your mind. I think this is my new favorite verse in the Bible. I just, I just really like this. Nothing you said is true. You simply made it up in your mind. I think that'd be a good pastoral response to emails and letters. Just Nehemiah 610. Is it 6960? Just send them the text. Go and read it. There's my answer. Nothing in this email is true. You've simply made it up in your own head. End of discussion. I'm going back to work. I've got pastoring to do. A clear denial. Secondly, he recognizes the intent. Clearly, the motive is to cause fear and to intimidate in order to get us to stop the work. If we can really see this, I will really pull the curtain back on the enemy's work in your heart, in our hearts, in this church, in our lives just trying to get you intimidated and afraid to get you to stop. When you're afraid, you're stymied, you stop, you can't move forward. And the enemy would love to instill that into our hearts. But Nehemiah recognizes 
their bad, evil intent. We see again how Nehemiah is constantly focused on who God is and what God has called him to do. Now, it took considerable courage for Nehemiah to respond the way that he did. You can imagine, if, if you stop and think about it, the implications certainly could have been devastating. He was close friends with the king. He worked for the king. He was the cupbearer to the king. The king looked upon favor with him and granted him money and help and passageway and permission and a leave of absence from his job to go and do this. Can you imagine that king sitting there and now getting this report? That guy is stabbing me in the back. That guy played me, and now he's going to undermine my kingdom. That's what these three regional leaders were trying to convince the king about, or at least convince Nehemiah that they were going to convince the king about. He gives a clear denial. He recognized the intent, and he prays. Can you imagine? He prays. There it is again. How many times have we been talking about prayer as we've been studying through the book of Nehemiah? We pray. We pray first. We pray before we start. We pray in the middle. When we, we pray when we get stuck. We pray when we get in trouble. He prays. He knew what was right, and he prayed for strength to do it. Opposition has a way of wearing us down. And sometimes we have to cry out to God. In fact, not sometimes, all the time, frequently. God, I know what you've called us to do. Give us strength. We're feeling weakened by the opposition, by the setbacks. The one step forward, the two steps back is wearing thin. We're moving a little slower. We're finding ourselves wondering a little bit more, a little bit hesitant to step back in the game, asking different kinds of questions. What if this? What if that? And rather than going down those rabbit trails, Nehemiah just gets on his knees again. Okay, God, it's clear. We need strength. Come supply. Brief, quick prayer. Shoot one up. We need strength, God. Come and meet us. Nehemiah was certainly a great leader. He had some real metal. But he was a man like any other and knew his dependence on the Lord was where he stood. Position number three, attack from within. We need someone on the inside. That's how we're going to get Nehemiah to stop the work. The strategy gets more intense. It's one thing to have a known enemy oppose you. You expect it from them. You remember Psalm 55, David writing about this? For it's not an enemy who taunts me, then I could bear it. That's easy. It is not an adversary who deal in, insolently with me. Then I could hide from it, but it's you, a man, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. Strategy number three, get someone on the inside. So they hire a prophet named Shehemiah. Nehemiah goes to his house for a meeting. Shemiah says, I got a word for you. Come over to my house, and I'm going to prophesy over you. He says, they're trying to kill you. So I want you to come with me and hide in the temple. 
Well, friends, then, just like now, prophetic words need to be tested against all that God has said in writing. 1 John 4, 1, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. Nehemiah's response. There were two things very wrong with this supposed prophecy that he had just been given. First of all, Nehemiah was not permitted inside the doors of the temple. So now all of a sudden, he has supposedly God telling him to do something that God clearly told him not to do. He was not a priest. Going inside the temple behind the closed doors was not a place that he could go. And he explains this in the text. And also, he said, also would have simply just been a display of fear and cowardice on his part to run and hide when his safety was threatened. Nehemiah recognized something. What he did was going to affect all the people doing the work. Chapter 6 is about him. The focus is on him. Everything hinges on him. He needs to pass these tests. If he doesn't pass the test, the work stops. The people would give up. It was their leader that needed to stand strong. And he says, if I buckle, if I go run and hide, it's over. If that's the signal that I'm sending to all the people doing the work, we've lost. The people's morale must have been fragile, to say the least. The opposition was strong and intense, and they were nearing the completion of the wall. So without a strong and courageous leader, people would have surely have lost heart and quit before the project was complete. Again, who is God? He's holy. His house is holy. His place is holy. I cannot violate God's way, God's law here to save my own skin, even under the pretense of a prophetic word to me. What did he call me to do? Build the wall. Run and hide? No. Build the wall. He knew who his God was. So he knew what to do. It was knowing who God was. It was knowing what God called him to do that gave him the discernment and the courage to do what he needed to do. Okay, last point. The hope that God gives Okay, there's more to this message than I would, did not want you to go home just saying, okay, folks, here's the sermon. Life is hard. Get used to it. Okay, it's just tough. It's just, I'm sorry it's so miserable, but it's just hard. It's going to keep being hard. It's never not going to be hard. So there it is. Just buck up and get used to it. No, it's not just that. Although it is true, in Acts 14, and the apostles came back and tried to encourage the struggling churches. They insisted that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. That is certainly true. We enter the kingdom of God through many trials and tribulations. But it is also true that God often brings about progress and moments of victory. And this chapter ends with the wall was completed. We're assuming, assuming the doors got hung. 
The wall is attached all the way around the city. The doors are up on their hinges. The doors are closed. The whole project has been accomplished. Yes, there are times when it feels like one step forward, two back. There are also times when God moves by his spirit, and it's a leap forward for the people of God. God still comes and meets and supplies and acts and enters into our lives and into history and into moments of time and creates that success and that movement forward. It's not just all a fight. It's not just all endurance under opposition. God comes through and provided. Nehemiah was faithful. He trusted the Lord, and it was mission accomplished. They built the wall. In spite of all the opposition, not only did the wall get completed, but we read a verse the tables got turned on their enemies. The whole situation felt reversed. Can you imagine for the days and weeks under the opposition, feeling under the gun, weakening, maybe faltering, wondering how is this going to turn out? They complete the job. God moves. He empowers it. And what did it say? They became afraid and fell on their, in their own esteem, for they perceived that the work have been accomplished with the help of God. Friends, that's what we're after. Those moments when God comes and helps. And yes, we've had some steps backward, but God comes at times and moves us forward. I've been saying in this chapter that all eyes are on the leader. The project rested entirely on Nehemiah and his ability to withstand against the opposition. I don't know if you've seen the movie, Darkest Hour. It's a movie about Winston Churchill. It portrays how in 1940, the fate of World War II hung on Winston Churchill, who had to decide whether to negotiate with Adolf Hitler or fight on knowing that it could mean the end of the British Empire. If you've not seen the film, it really captures the agony that that man went through and how it did in so many ways rest on that one man, his decision, his fortitude, his discernment, his insight. As he went, so went the country. The fate of God's people rested on Nehemiah in the book of Nehemiah. It rested on whether or not this one man was able to stay the course and lead God's people through to a completion of the project. And because he knew his God and because he knew what God had called him to do, there was a great step forward for the people of God. This chapter marks a major benchmark in the history of God's people. They were back in their city. The temple was restored. They completed the wall around the city. They were a people again. The people of God were being restored. And Nehemiah was the man there to help make it happen. There was to come another moment in history when the well-being and the success of God's people rested entirely on one man. 
this man needed to accomplish a task as well. His task was to lay down his life on the cross. That was his mission. He knew it, and he set his face toward it. Oh, he had a ministry that was filled with leaps forward, advances, marvelous, spectacular crowds, miracles. He had the whole world's attention. He had the favor of many, and yet he knew his father. And he knew what his father had called him to do. And so in the midst of a hugely successful ministry, he set himself toward Jerusalem to make his way to the cross, to his own death. And when he was there on the cross, breathing his last, he said, it is finished. Nehemiah chapter 6, the wall was finished. But on the cross, Jesus said, it's finished. This was the benchmark of all benchmarks for the people of God. This was the moment in history that changed everything for humanity. Not just in the world, in the universe. Cosmically, it was a moment of change where one man knew his God, knew what his God had called him to do, and stayed the course all the way to the end, drank that cup down to its dregs, breathed his last on the cross, settled it all, completed the work, and said, it is finished. And it was the greatest victory for God's glory and for the people of God. It was a huge advance forward. You talk about a moment where it felt like, ah, oh, it was going so well, and now it looks so bad. It wasn't a step forward and two steps back. I mean, it was 10 steps forward and 1,000 steps back. He was dying. He was criticized. He was beaten. He was scorned. He was mocked. He was dying. But he knew. He knew his God. He knew what God had called him to do. And because he stayed the course, it changed everything. Changed everything for you. Changed everything for me. Changed everything for us. So, yes, our world is filled with opposition. Worship team, you can come on up. Our world is filled with opposition to what God is doing and to his people. And friends, Nehemiah chapter 6 is a simple reminder that it just keeps coming. Okay, we're not going to get a break from it. It keeps coming. But be encouraged with this. 1 John chapter 4, verse 4. Listen to the Apostle John speak to God's people. Listen to the Apostle John speak to you, little children, little children who recognizes something about who we are. Little, little children, listen to me. Listen to your father in the faith. You are from God. 
You are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. So rather than this message being a downer about how hard life is and just get used to it, more is coming. Lift up your eyes and see what the Lord is doing. Great advances are in the program as well. And know this. Yes, there's opposition. But the Lord is with you and in you. And the one who's in you is greater, stronger, more resilient than all and any opposition coming your way. Amen? It is true. Let's, let's stand.